Inverse Genius Episode 54, Fortnightly, Mess Around and Find Out. In this reunion episode, Dr. Scott Nicholson joins Dr. Eric Dewey and Master Donald Dennis about what they've been geeking out about lately. Prop making, fantasy book series, resin art, and the movie Sneakers all get discussed. Hey, do you know you can go over to podpledge.com and search for Inverse Genius and you'll see our Podpledge page. All that money goes to help support the ongoing podcasting costs. And we truly appreciate it. Thanks. And welcome to another episode of the Inverse Genius Fortnightly, a show where we just talk about stuff that we like that is not tabletop game related, because we've got a whole other show for that over on, on board games. I'm Donald Dennis. You can find me all over the wilds of the internet as Walsfio. And today I'm thrilled to have two people who are my original co-hosts for the first podcast I ever hosted. We're going to start off with uh, Eric Dewey. Dr. Eric Dewey. Hello. <laughs> Thank you. Welcome. Good to hear you again, Don. Hey, Eric. <laughs> Hello. And Scott Nicholson. That's Dr. Dr. Scott, Scott Nicholson. Nicholson. Thank you very much. <laughs> Dr. Scott Nicholson. <laughs> so we'll say Dr. Dewey and Dr. Nicholson, and then we'll just call Donald Donald. We call him Master, Master Dennis. Donald. We have to call you Master Donald? Master yeah. Dennis? <laughs> yes. Well, but that's probably a different podcast, so we won't go there. Uh, but anyway, so uh, has everybody, you know, have you, have you been geeking out over anything lately? Anything exciting that you want, want to talk about uh, before we get into the big show? Or uh, or should I do my update on chicken sandwiches? Because Eric, I have opinions on chicken sandwiches that I have to throw us back. Ooh. at. <laughs> All right, throw out a chicken sandwich opinion. Right. So Scott, I, I I don't think you've listened to uh, to that episode, but uh, Eric's son was on a previous episode and talked about his rankings of favorite chicken sandwiches, and uh, I have there was missing spice. Right, it was uh, like the kind of chicken sandwiches you would have liked back when we were in college with absolutely no flavor whatsoever. And so he loves, you know, non-spicy ones. So I have been doing a spicy chicken sandwich rundown and mine used to be the Wendy's sandwich, but the new Bojangles spicy chicken sandwich, the bow chicken or whatever it is, is pretty amazing. And it is a huge piece of chicken that they put on there. I thought the first time I was like, obviously they gave me too much chicken. So a couple weeks later, I tried it again. Still delicious. The Popeye's, Spicy chicken sandwich is pretty good, but not quite as good as the Bojangles one. So Interesting. there's so, my update. So do you find the Bojangles to be spicier than the Popeyes? Or just, uh, just a slightly different spice. Just yeah, just it's yeah, different. It was a bigger piece of chicken. Um, and that may just because they are introducing it now. Mm-hmm. And so they want everybody to love it and come back and keep getting it. Because when po- uh, what was it when Domino's redid all of their pizzas for about six months, their pizzas were delicious. And now they're kind of like they always were, <laughs> you know, so there you oh, have cool. it. Um, and so that's all, all looking back that I have to do is, is that. So I think, well, let's get into the topics. Scott, would you like to go first, second or third? Uh, I'll go third. You'll go back, clean up. All right, yep. Eric, you're up then. All righty. So uh, I've mentioned off and on in, in the other podcasts that, for the past, it's actually been about five or six years, I've been trying to collect replica props of uh, just s- stuff that was important to me. Lightsabers, Harry Potter wands, you know, Walter PPKs, that kind of stuff. Han Solo blasters, right. etc. Dust so, catchers. Yep, exactly. Not dust catchers, but you, you get it. <laughs> yes. 
And so uh, I had a list, a very specific list of things that I wanted to acquire. And over time, I have finally acquired all of them. The only thing I didn't acquire was a uh, Buck Rogers blaster from the TV show. But I did find a 3D model and over a long period of time was able to 3D print out one. So anyway, that was that was sort of the last Mm. thing. And I was really excited about that. But I want to say that there's a ton of information on, you know, different replica props. And right. so the place that I wanted to talk about is, in my mind, the holy grail for this information. And that's the Replica Prop Forum, the RPF.com. And Ooh. as its name suggests, it is a place for people who are interested in replica props and costumes to come and discuss all this kind of stuff, trade and sell stuff, and just otherwise dive, honestly, way too deep into props. <laughs> And costumes nice. and things. So do they have like a parts list where you're like, if you want to build this particular version of the Ghostbusters proton pack, you need to get like 75 of these screws, 15 feet of red wire, that kind of thing. Or, or what do they tell you on? That would forum? be brilliant. Yeah. There's a, there'll be a thread somewhere on the forum. You just do a search for it. Uh, and it tells you, okay, so this, you know, this piece that they used, this was originally, you know, from a Volvo such and such. And, you know, so they could break down uh-huh. what the different pieces are um, specifically, a lot of times, really specifically. And then, um, and then, yeah, you can kind of look at blueprints and look at the screenshots. And, and there's lots of people that kind of come together and group and help. Like, um, for whatever reason, the the fertility idol in Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, is a real popular mm-hmm. thing because the ones that are available are usually the stunt prop. So when Indy's running, but not necessarily mm-hmm. the prop that was on the idol or on the pedestal when you look in. And so there's people that are mm-hmm. carving it and they're like, this is how I've you know sculpted it. And then other people are like, well, I think the, the, the mouth isn't smiling enough. And I mean, it, you can get as detailed as you want and it is incredibly Im- impressive the knowledge that these people have that's exciting uh, and for those of you who just kind of want to do neat stuff inspired by stuff it's also that way too it's not like a snobbish kind of cult they even have a uh, forum for just like paper props so if you wanted to make a paper stormtrooper helmet you know it's not going to look like a real one but it'll be close and there's how to do all of that and makeup effects and and all that kinds of stuff. So the RPF.com, the Replica Prop Forum, is incredible. And then lastly, they have what they call the junkyard, and that's where people sell stuff. It's like, oh, I've got the grenade that they made Obi-Wan's lightsaber out of, so here you go. If you want to spend $300 on it, here you go. Or, yeah, <laughs> uh, Is there a, like a beginner's area where if you're like, I haven't done much of this replica prop making that I can go in and, and find some starter projects? Or is it really more for folks who are sort of dedicated to it and who know what they're looking for. There's definitely, there's not a beginner area, but there's definitely a beginner uh, helping mentality. The idea is to come in with a prop that you want to own in some way or make. And then that, from that point forward, because that's what they'll say. They're like, oh yeah, what would you like to, you know, what are you interested in? What do you want to do? And from that point forward, you kind of go in and, and start to follow in on, on whatever it is that they're, that you're interested in. So all right, so Scott, what uh, prop would you like to own? Hmm. Or what replica it, thing would you be interested in getting? Let's look real quick, see at the replica you know, prop form. To be honest, um, 
I don't really have anything. But what I my connection into this is more through what Adam Savage does. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And his because I've been learning how to you know with uh, having to do make escape room stuff and having to figure out how to manufacture. So that's more of what I do is I come in. It's like I need to make this thing for an escape room. How do I do it? And that's where I got to looking at Adam Savage, who was one of the hosts of Mythbusters. He does his he's got a video series called One Day Builds. And he does a lot with cosplay and a lot with proper application and shows in one day, how do they make stuff? And I, do, I would imagine there's a lot of crossover between that forum and what Adam's doing because he's brought that kind of thing to a, a different audience. I don't know. Do you know his stuff? Have you looked at that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, yes. he, gets, he gets linked a lot uh, in, in there. And there's actually quite a few YouTubers. There's a guy like Punisher Props who say, oh, you know. Here's how to make, a lot of times it's video game weapons, but, you know, here's a gun from Halo made out of that EVA foam, you know, those ma- those interconnecting mats that uh, mm-hmm. you can put on the floor. Yeah, the, yeah, the Punish Props Academy guys are great. Yeah, 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 and uh, stuff like that. The only, the only kind of warning that I'll come up with is that you may suddenly find yourself wanting things you didn't know you wanted before. <laughs> uh, there is a, I do have an, I do now have a fertility idol because <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. Um, and a running joke in my family. That's a is, good. That's a good story. Stick with that story. Yeah, <laughs> that works. That works. It's a good uh, cover story. I'll, I'll, can I use that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Are you going to have a third child, Eric? Is that what I'm hearing? No. 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 <laughs> but the big joke in our family is I own at this stage a life-size Han Solo frozen in carbonite. At least the Han Solo part. I have to build the box that he's in. Um, and I was like, man, you know, this guy is making casts of it. That was, you know, a cast off of a cast, whatever. So, yeah, so I've got this, uh, and the big box comes in, it's in multiple parts. And, and and my wife is like, what is this? And I pull it out. I was like, isn't this cool? (laughs) (laughs) And. Uh, her her first thought is there. Where is this going to go? And I'm not foolish enough to think this is hanging in the living room or anything. It's like, no, oh, it goes in the bedroom. Exactly on the <laughs> ceiling, in the bedroom on the ceiling. So you wake uh, up and you look down at that. Yeah. So that uh, that's when I realized <laughs> uh, I probably should clear. Some is that of your this. is that your fertility? Idol? <laughs> that's, that's the fertility idol. <laughs> uh, oh. Uh, yeah. So nice. Just make sure you have space for what you want. But like I said, the, the the skill work that these people put into stuff is is impressive. There's this one guy. This one cracks me up. Have you guys ever played the Borderlands video game? Oh mm-hmm. yes. Okay. So you know the little machine that you the vending machines where you can get your guns and bullets and stuff. So mm-hmm. there's a welder that wants to make and is in the middle of making one life size <sighs> fully working, and it looks incredible. My, my thought, of course, is where you're going to put this, but um, but power to him. You know, it's like anybody who wants to kind of dive into anything. Oh, there's another guy who's making a full scale replica of a colonial Viper from Battlestar Galactica. I'm like, you guys are impressive and have very permissive wives. <laughs> this is fly? the danger of having. So <laughs> no. No. I have a two story barn and an outside large barn shed uh, outbuildings. So that danger of where you're going to put it, then. Uh, that that's gone. It's like, well, yeah, I kind of have a lot of space here to put anything. Um, I did want to build an escape room out in that barn, but uh, the floor is a little creaky because it's not waterproof because the top floor is used for, was used for tobacco drying. So the top 
the boards on the top don't come together because it wasn't designed that way. Uh, but that means snow and water gets in. So the floor is this mishmash of rusted steel. And uh, there's, there's 8 million safety concerns running around <laughs> that space. Uh, but uh, mm. but it does mean I have sort of infinite storage space for anything like that. So for me, it's it's my large, very large gardening shed and birdhouse. Because <laughs> <laughs> we probably have 200 birds that live in there now. So cool. So that's it. The RPF.com. I'm looking up different things. It's like, ooh, XCOM stuff. Ooh, Valheim. I know. So what is yours, Don? What is your thing you'd want to make? Oh, that I would want to make? Ooh, let's see. Um, I'd actually like to make some of the XCOM weapons. I think those would be pretty cool. Um, You know, I don't necessarily have a specific one that I would like, but one of the plasma guns would be be pretty neat. or if we were going fantasy, hmm. Well, that's well, the my Han first, Solo thing. No, my oh first my thought gosh. is the ha, ha, ha. no. My first thought is maybe the Conan sword from the movie. Uh, yeah, 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 but yeah. Uh, you know that would probably to look cool would require an actual good forge. Um, you know, or uh, yeah, one of the elven cloaks from from Lord of the Rings. So, so has this intensified in the pandemic time? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Probably between it's funny between that between 3D printing and a few other things, just the popularity of it in general. Yeah, I imagine it has. Uh, the, the the other side of the coin though is that there's no place other than video to display. Like, you know, you, there weren't the the Dragon Cons and the whatnot to actually display your your convention stuff until recently. So, or your your cosplay stuff. Yeah, Twitch. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of yeah, folks yeah. have moved to Twitch as well over the over time, and they've opened up so it's not just video games anymore, like it was briefly, where they really limited that. And to actually tie this into a previous episode, um, this is this is where I got the pages for my journal for Gravity Falls that I made. Um, oh, because there was a guy who basically took screen captures of every page and then turned them essentially into giant TIFF files. And then I was able to take, you know, he freely gave those away. And so I was able to take those and, and lay them out correctly and print it out and then learn book binding and, and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, actually that's, that's a great, I'm changing my answer. What I want is I would like (laughs) to do a variety of books, right? Do the Necronomicon from army of darkness, uh, do the journals from gravity falls, because those are the kinds of things that I could do at work. We could put them on display as part of the library, uh, and they get a little touchy there about weaponry stuff, even if it's obviously fake. It's like, this is not an actual laser rifle. Yeah, yeah. The boss still doesn't like it. Um, (laughs) And so that would be a fun fun project to do, a variety of those, you know, some like the Elder Scroll books or or Elder Scroll Scrolls and stuff. So, yeah, that's that's my new favorite thing. All right. Well, uh, Eric, do you have any last thoughts on... Uh, the RPF crafter fandom. No, just fun place. Just nope. beware the rabbit hole. <laughs> okay. Hmm. Uh, well, I'm going to talk about a book series. Uh, I'm going to talk about the gentleman bastard series by Scott Lynch, starting off with lies of Loch Lamara. And then they have red seas under red skies and Republic of thieves. And I'm doing this now because in April, uh, the next book is supposed to come out. However, They've said this every year for the past five years, but I was going to say, how long is it? We have high hopes, but it's actually, how long has it been? 
Um, well, he knew the title for this book, I think, for the better part of a decade. Uh, but yeah. So anyway, Scott Lynch, amazing author. Uh, specifically, though, I'm talking about the audiobooks narrated by Michael Page. Uh, and it's really neat because the setting is a fantasy world. The main character groups are confidence men who are trying to survive in this world where there's weird magic, vast amounts of dangerous alchemy, and uh, some history to the world uh, that you that they hint at, but they don't dive deeply into exploring. I'm sure that as, as the series goes on, you'll learn a little bit more. So it's not like Tolkien, where he tries to tell you everything that ever happened in the world based on this one little flower that you see. Um, <laughs> and and an eight-page poem about it uh, and in right. Elvish song. <laughs> and don't get me wrong. I, I love Tolkien uh, for you know his time and his place. Pretty darn amazing. But so uh, this um, audiobook reader, Michael Page, he his performance is pretty darn amazing. He's not using, you know, the standard British and Scottish accents. He's probably, I guess, they would be uh, Spanish or Italian or, you know, other variety of accents for some of the characters. Or some of them probably just made up. I don't know. Uh, but you can tell the characters apart, uh, even when they're going into their characters, because they're, they're often playing other parts themselves. It's pretty exciting. The world is rich and amazing. I don't, I don't really know what else to say about this. But the first one um, is all based in one city. One thing I would yeah. add just in as broad is that the, you know, the con or the heist that they're pulling off is usually really well done story-wise. Like, I mean, yes, the, the, Scott Lynch does an incredible job of, of really like when the climax happens, you're like, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> right. Yes. And, and I will say that, um, you know, in the, the first book, they're in Lamora, the city of Lamora, which has got a bunch of bridges and uh, you know rivers that they go over and stuff like that. And edit to say, I meant to say the first, the first book took place in the city of Camor, not in the city of Lamora. Don't know what I was thinking, but uh, yeah, the city of Camor. There's this you know huge thieves guild like organization that they're part of who have a secret peace with the nobles of the city, which you learn of pretty quickly as stuff is going on. Don't steal from X, Y, or Z, right? Um, and then you learn more about how uh, Locke's gang is, is sort of playing against that and doing weird things and stuff. So it is it's pretty amazing, uh, both the characterizations of the characters and, and all the different characters. You know, you never feel like, oh, this is just generic type of character X. Uh, they're, they're pretty well-developed and stuff. Um, I don't know, Scott. Have you read any of these? No, it's the first time I've heard of them. Oh. Uh, I learned of it back when I was living in Maryland. Yeah, the pitch is Ocean's Eleven meets you know Lord of the Rings kind of thing, right? Or Thieves' World, you know? Or Thieves' World, yeah. I tell you, I really enjoyed the books. There's one thing I did not care for, and that is, and I'm trying to remember. I know the first two. I think the third one did as well. The third one's about the play. Maybe I didn't read. No, surely I read it. It's been too long. That's okay. Two issues. One, it takes forever for the next one to come out. Right. So I don't remember any of the characters, but it's a good excuse to reread them Two, They end on just an amazingly hellish cliffhanger. (laughs) And then you got to wait, what, three, four years to find out how this particular cliffhanger resolves. And they get into 
situations where you go, there's no way they're going to get out of this. Uh, and when they do, you're like, most of the time you're like, Oh, okay. This all makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this is reasonable within this, within the rules of the world. Right. Uh, and then frequently because they're smart people who get themselves into stupid, smart situations, uh, they're like, ah, we have solved this problem through our wits and we have not violated. Oh, this is going to come back and kick us in the ghoulies. You know? <laughs> yep. So, but I do think they're great books. I definitely recommend them. Um, I guess, yeah, if the next one's coming out, I gotta, I'm sure I've read the third one. Right. So the second one's probably one of my favorites though. Yeah. The first one is uh, a lot of stuff is going on in this one town and you're learning a lot about the world and you're learning sort of how the characters interact. The second one, uh, is piratey and gambly and it's got, that's the one that's got the spire, right? The, the wealth spire. And then the third one has got, uh, or maybe that's another one. The third one is is putting on a play called The Republic of Thieves that they sort of get sucked into. Oh, that I is an that interesting now. play on them playing like they're doing a specific thing. Yeah. And so, super fun. My brain's going to uh, how this gets converted then into the game world because it sounds like there's lots of interesting spaces for that, which then takes my brain to. Um, the the game Bad Company. I don't know. Do you know this? It's a new the video uh, game. No, it's a new tabletop game. No, nope. just came out at Essen last week. Um, I know this isn't the focus of this show, but it's a nice. It, it, I could see. So Bad Company is imagine like Machi Koro meets a heist. Ooh. So your gang members are all triggered on different dice rolls, and you've got a board which shows you running away from the police. A board which is sort of your heisting. And as you are rolling the dice, you are activating your different gang members who can all do different things. Um, and then you can increase their, like Machi Koro, you can make different numbers be more powerful for you. Um, I haven't had a chance to play it yet. I've been, it's one of these, I, it's one of the few, I'm like, I want to get that. Uh, but yeah. I think that's a, that's a, would be a cool crossover uh, theme to play off of this. So for role-playing games, you could easily do Blades of Dark sort of variant where you're running your own little gang you're working your way up in this town. You'd have to change the setting quite a bit, but the actual mechanisms for building your own game, building up your hideout, doing your stuff. Um, and like, Oh no, we've been exiled from this city. We have to go start over again. So it's, yeah, you could absolutely do that in a role-playing game. In fact, there was one that came out a few years back called dusk city outlaws, where it was designed exactly to be, <laughs> it was functionally lies of Locke Lamora sand off the serial number. So, which I have a copy of, by the way. I kickstarted it. So, rock on. Is it good? Never played it. I've read it a few times. Never played it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, you know. So that's me. Uh, go read a book. Hmm. Scott, a book. what you got for us? Well, mine's gonna tie in somewhat to what what Eric talked about, um, and that is. Uh, making and uh, online resources to help with that and finding new passions. Um, Over the last uh, few years, I have been, uh, I guess, making a transition about how I think about myself. Now, you you knew me back in my college days when I had my degree in mathematics and computer science and all of that. We liked you anyway. I would never at that point in my life think of myself as, call myself an artist. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And, uh, you know, it's not something that I would ever think that I would do. But over the last few years, I have come to accept and recognize and take on that label of being an artist. Um, Part of that driven because the degree program that I'm running at the university is a degree in, in, in arts um, and thinking of game design as an art, but then also getting more into visual arts. Um, the other transition that, so growing up in rural Oklahoma, um, my parents did not have any particular passion whatsoever for abstract art. And so there was no uh, any attention ever paid to that. And it was over the years, I found that when I go to another city, if I have a chance to go to an art museum, I will seek out an abstract art museum. Um, and I'm finding I, I enjoy that. And so in the pandemic time, I have uh, continued to explore these arts. Now, about a decade ago, I started doing face painting. And uh, that for me, though, I never really saw that as art. I saw that as party tricks. Uh, because <laughs> when you learn to do face painting, uh, you're basically learning a few brush strokes and a way to combine different uh, basic uh, sponge work and brush work into creating a set of designs that people like. And you're really only painting a, a few inch square inches on someone's a few face. shapes and patterns. Yeah, yeah. There's, not, there's not a lot of face to actually paint. Um, you know, there's, and when, so when you're doing it, like in any kind of a, a, a fair situation or any party situation, it's really just putting a little color, some lines on you, uh, for a piece of art that you'll get to walk away with and wash away. So that's a nice thing about face painting is you don't have to have any collection of art when it's done. You know, you may have the photographs, but there's no stuff that you're accumulating, which if you've ever done art, you know, you accumulate. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I never really saw that as much with art. Uh, then at the start of the pandemic, I started exploring uh, watercolor painting. And again, with that, what I found I was drawn to and, and is not so much painting known things, but painting more patterns and shapes and more abstract stuff. Um, my mom took up watercolor painting shortly after I did, and it became something we bonded over. But she very much wanted to create things that looked like things. She wanted to make this flower. She wanted to make this bird. Um, while I was more like, look, pretty colors go together with the water and, oh, who knows what will happen. And I enjoyed <laughs> that. Um, and that then has led me to what I've been doing over the last month or so, and that is exploring this acrylic pour painting. Uh, so yes. acrylic pour painting is where you take uh, different colors of acrylic paints. You then uh, pour them onto a canvas you have different ways of manipulating the paints to make a variety of uh, shapes and cells. And um, it is completely abstract and color patterns, and I am absolutely loving it. And it's it's interesting how I've gone through this pathway of um, growing up with abstract art and that sort of art not being any part of anything nor appreciated to the point where I've now said, yeah, I actually really like this. Uh, this freeformness, this uh, this exploring, uh, moving paint around, and and this acrylic pour painting, it's it's all based around these concepts of fluid dynamics. That you have paints that have uh, different viscosities, um, and you pour them on such that paints near the bottom want to float to the top, and paints near the top want to sink to the bottom, and that motion creates these interesting cells and patterns. Um, you can add things like silicone oil to um, make that more aggressive um, and create certain types of shapes. You can use fire 
to uh, open up some of the paints on the top layer. You can use air to blow paint all over your basement, as I've learned. Um, <laughs> or <laughs> um, that's I've learned some tips there. Plastic up everything because uh, if you're going to use a straw or your or a hot air uh, hot air gun straw or just your lips to blow, um, can make different patterns. I haven't yet gotten into dragging shapes. You can drag like metal chains through it, like beaded chains to make patterns. So it's been interesting to explore this. I feel I'm just on my first few steps of it. Um, but I do feel I'm getting better with it, but it's been interesting to explore this as an art form. Nice. Well, and, you know, I think that there's a, a real value to abstra- abstract art, uh, but the, you know, knowing how or why other art is really good or being an, ob- an observationalist of the, of the natural world around you can even help you make better abstract art. And I know that you, you know, you've got a huge interest in a variety of things. So even if you're not creating, Oh, I'm going to draw this bird, you know, your bird watch. So you'll say, Oh, these colors work well together or whatever, based on your other experience. Yeah. Well, and actually doing a, a little color theory study and understanding what colors generally look good together, what don't look good together, but also being inspired by, by uh, nature, by, because uh, I now have a couple acres of land. I spent a lot of time outside gardening and farming and dealing with that and taking that as an inspiration to say, well, I want to do something that's inspired by my the, land, the view I have, the colors of the view I have, and some of the general shapes of the view I have. But mm-hmm. you couldn't tell that, but it gives you an internal guide. Um, I did pottery for a while, and what I found with pottery is, again, when I would throw pottery, the more I tried to force the clay into something, the less successful the final outcome was. And the more I let the clay become what it wanted to become, the happier I was with whatever came out of it. Have you watched The Great Pottery Throwdown? No, I haven't. I've, I recommend it highly. It's on HBO, at least ah, here in the States. Okay. I don't know don't know knows where it would be up in Canada, something like, you know. Uh, it's a BBC you know, show, though. So ma- Maple Leaf Chicken Network. <laughs> <or something. laughs> right. It may be on one of the BritBox shows or something else because it's a UK, uh, somewhere out of the UK. I don't know exactly where, um, but it is here in the US. It's on on HBO. Um, so what you were talking about there made me think of two things. Uh, first, I was talking with my advisor, former advisor, I guess, uh, last week, and he's a birder, but he's taking up photography, like wildlife and nature photography. And he's been posting his pictures and I was telling him, yeah, I really liked what you've done. And he was kind of talking about how he always sort of wanted to do it and just finally decided to learn how to do it. And um, and he's like, and now I look back at some of my original pictures that I posted and I was like, oh, these are just terrible. And I, and I sort of commented as like, yeah, but that just shows how much you've grown. And so they're not really that terrible. They're just, that's not how you would do it. But you shouldn't really be disappointed in what you did in the past because that was where you were at in your skill level. And that was just something that I kind of really have to remind myself. Cause I look at, you know, like some of the books I wrote originally that never got published. And I was like, Oh, this is crap. I was like, yeah, <laughs> it is, but you did it. And that, you know, it allows you to see how far you've grown. So, you know, kind of an encouragement of, even if you don't like what you originally did, it was great at the time and it kind of keeps you going. If you haven't done those, you might not get to where you are now. Indeed, indeed. Well, and, and, and then you also have that Dunning-Kruger effect, um, Yes, if you know that effect. So the Dunning-Kruger effect is where uh, when you just start at something, you think you're really, really good at it. 
And then as you learn about it, you realize how bad you actually are at it. Um, <laughs> and then over time, you're able to build that confidence back up. Um, so I am now, uh, I, I did a few videos right away when I was exploring this stuff when I was at the tip of my Dunning-Kruger. Now I'm down in the trench of everything is awful and I'm crawling <laughs> my way out of it. Um, I think the last painting I ended up scraping, that's the other nice thing about doing this acrylic pour painting. If you do it and you're like, you look at the canvas and you're like, yeah, I don't like this. You can just scrape it all off. You can actually scrape it onto itself and see if you can get something more interesting to happen. Because again, as long as you haven't stirred up the paint, but it still is in the different colors that are blending, as if they have different viscosities, you're going to get the effect again. So if it's like white in general, because it's got titanium in it, uh, it's heavy and sinks down. So if that white is then on the top layer and you don't like what you've done and you flip it over and you're like, and then that let that white then and that's where you can torch it and loosen up that white a little bit and it'll move again. You can say, oh, is that any better? Or like I, I did, I ended up scraping everything off. The canvas still had coloring on it. That was fine because I'm then going to remix a set of paints. It's the same colors of paints. I'm just going to go through the process in a different way. But having that back color um, doesn't make any difference at all to the final piece. In fact, in some ways it makes it more interesting and ensures the edges are covered. So it's nice in that if you don't like what you got, with this kind of painting, you can just scrape that canvas off even after it's been a day or two. I've done it that way. And some of the colors settled in. You can scrape it off. You can actually just pour right on top of another canvas. And right. A lot of old masters that. painted over old canvases. So, so yeah, that's it's it's nice in that you're not like, oh, I've wasted that canvas. It's like, no, you just – you don't even – if you don't like a part of it, you can re-pour and rework on just that little section of it if you want to see if you can make that move around in different ways but it's been interesting to explore it uh, don i know that you were going to explore some of this uh did that happen oh they did it at the library uh, without me it was in the uh, another oh. department and uh, did you have to come so... and clean it up afterwards <laughs> no it was children's <laughs> not not young adults um so do you think it's important that you do uh, your paint pours on a canvas and not say on a piece of board or on like uh, maybe some mdf you could do it MDF. Uh, MDF that, that takes a lot of prep work. Something that's very popular are tiles, um, right? Like uh, ceramic tiles to do the pour on. Part of that is the uh, you know the MDF has to have to get that surface relatively smooth or primed. Um, but yeah, that, actually, that's some of the videos. So for me, I've been using YouTube as my references for a lot of this because there's a lot of YouTube videos around this, usually with um, slow and dramatic music playing as someone very <laughs> slowly moves paint around. Um, and there is sort of a meditative piece of it. I did a few videos at the beginning. I stopped doing the videos about it because I found it didn't allow me to sink into the meditative part of it. Because I felt I always had to be narrating and putting on a show when I had the camera running. And I said, you know, I'm not doing it for that. I'm doing it for me. So that's why I – and I just stopped turning on the camera because I was like, I just want to enjoy this process and take the time it needs to take and not have to worry about explaining what I'm doing. And I'm finding it's a much more healing process for me now that I don't feel like I've got that camera on and running and that I have to be the showman. Hmm. Well, um, as apparently is what I'm doing this episode, I have a recommendation uh, that uh, Evan and Caitlin have done some acrylic pours, and theirs always turns out hilarious. So uh, I don't know if you'll learn anything from it, but you might be entertained. So, Cool. The other thing that kind of 
when you were talking, you know, you originally mentioned that you wouldn't have considered yourself an artist. And that's something that I've been sort of mulling over for a while is when do we have enough confidence to call ourselves something? So like, how much do I have to run to be a runner? You know, how much do I have to draw to be an artist, uh, you know, to consider myself or to call myself an artist um, or a novelist or whatever? And I always find that really fascinating. Like if you ask a whole bunch of kindergartners who's an artist, you know, the vast majority of them, their hand will go up. You ask fifth graders the same question and you're going to have a much smaller proportion of people raising their hand. So what happens in there? Uh, you know, socially. They found Dunning-Kruger. Exactly. <laughs> socially, emotionally, whatever, to where you suddenly don't assign a label uh, to it. So just as an offshoot, because, um, you know, I would argue you were an artist long before you ever decided to consider yourself one. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I, I think about that as well. I know that it's like I really was all this time along with all these different things. And, and but it, what triggered me thinking about it, I was on a cruise back in the before times when we used to put thousands of us on boats and go to locations. Um, and I had my beard colored. Um, and so I forget, I think it was a Christmas cruise. So it was probably dyed red and green. And we were at some port of call. And the uh, one of the tour leaders saw me and came over and, and that was his lead question. He's like, man, are you an artist? And... That really got me thinking to say, you know, maybe I, I am. Um, and accepting that has – accepting – I think because in my mind, um, I'd always ha- thought of myself as, you know, I'm a scientist and data-driven and I do the math and things uh, are objective and that's the way life is. And it, maybe it's a thing of getting older and you realize, screw all that, you know, uh, <laughs> we're all weird and and doing odd things. And maybe life, even if we think it's subjective, is not. And who needs to worry about that anyway? Um, we're going to be shuffling off this mortal coil pretty soon. So we might as well just uh, be who we are. Maybe part of that transition. I don't know. But it's been interesting. The pandemic time for me has really cemented that because I've not been engaging with a lot of people. Um, I've, and so having to find internally to come to grips with myself as myself um, and figuring that out has been, it's been very interesting. So how many uh, musical instruments have you bought in your life? Uh, I'd say 10 ish, you know, and how many have I gotten serious about a few and others Mm -hmm. I can just, make noise with right okay and you uh, used to design your own costumes for cosplay or yep, for uh I would, for larping for for, uh, for would do the costume stuff so sewing did that yep. throughout um but it, it was interesting even in the many times there it was you know let's see what we can make and learning to sew and then playing music it's all this stuff that i know had someone said hey dummy look at these things you're doing your art is important to you um but I think in my head, I had sort of, no, I'm not an artist. I'm a scientist. How dare you? But I'm like, oh, wait, S- good science actually is art. That was an aha that I had, that uh, science is, there's a chunk of being a good science. It's, it's you know, uh, m- mess around and find out, we'll say. Um, <laughs> 
<laughs> and Thank so, you. Thank you yes, very much. Uh, but that, I think, Mess Around and Find Out is a really good uh, demonstration of, of a good scientific process because you go through the stages of messing around. It's like, I don't know what I'm looking at, and I need to get some idea of that. So I'm just going to mess around a little bit until I start to see some patterns emerge or start to see. And that's where the art is coming in, because you can't just you're not just going to do something that's already there. Good science is pushing those boundaries and doing new things and combining things that haven't been combined or asking new questions. And that's the art side of it. And then you're like, okay, now I've messed around. Now I need to systematically find out. And explore more deeply these patterns I think are emerging. Do these actually emerge? And as you're then exploring those patterns, that inspires you to mess around again. Um, so we talk about qualitative versus quantitative research. Um, those are those stages. So qualitative is you're messing around. I'm trying to get some idea and then finding out a sort of quantitative. Now we're going to step into it and, and systematically find out. And I, I'm realizing now that good science, good design is both the sort of art and science, you know, that you have to think about both sides of that. So it's it's interesting coming to the grips of how both of those have had to have been important in order to be successful. Absolutely. All right. Well, so paint pouring, acrylic pours from Scott. Uh, that was a messy topic. We didn't cover just that, <laughs> but hooray. So it is it's kind of interesting how serial killers and acrylic pour painters need some of the same skill sets. To clean up their environment. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, anyway, Scott's got a big bunch of barns he can store stuff in too. So, hmm. yes, I, I actually have one YouTube video that uh, where where I took it out in in the barn, and one of my students watched that where I was showing different camcorders, ways to attach a camera to your body to film a virtual escape room. I explored that, and my students saw it, and it's like, whoa, Scott's got a murder barn. <laughs> <laughs> Like, no, no, no. Uh, Just a hobby. Like, you know, well, I wouldn't That's refer right. to it as that, but it is. It's a, it's a century barn, you know, and it's it's old and creaky and two stories. And and it's a, it, it would be an awesome escape, haunted escape room setup. So there you go. Put a real roof on that and you'll be halfway there. Huh? Actually, I have a real I've, I've, I have a real roof on it. I've paid to have a whole new roof on it. So mm-hmm. the new roof, we've had the whole foundation retipped. So it's actually just the siding. The next step would be so the the wood is old barn boards, um, but on the top floor there's gaps between them so the tobacco can dry. Right now, I've got a bunch of herbs drying out there uh, that I collected from I'm my sure herbs you do. that I built. Um, it is Canada. Um, so the uh, but if I wanted to make that waterproof, then I would add battens, which would be thin boards that would cover up the gaps between the large barn boards. And so that if I wanted to do that, on the other hand, when like the sun is going down, it's really cool in there because the sun comes in these boards, it casts this sort of these lines across the room. It's a really, it's a cool space as it is. I mean, Um, how big are these gaps? uh, The one to two inches. That's plenty Um, of floor. So, yeah. So that's the, those are the gaps on the, uh, on the, on the walls. The floor is multiple layers of years of throwing down some more uh, iron sheeting or that steel, uh, that corrugated sheeting that's rusted out. Also, because there's hundreds of birds living there, it's all got anything I put there, I have to put a tarp over um, because it's like tetanus waiting to happen. Yeah. So it's not a, it's not a healthy environment. It's not a say, I can't guarantee that uh, 
bad things won't happen if you're running around in there. Um, a funny story with that. So when we came in, there were paintball splats throughout the barn. Oh. And it's like, oh, obviously some kids have played paintball in here. Um, I was buying a pair of speakers uh, on uh, the equivalent of Craigslist up here from someone in town. And we were chatting about uh, where I just moved. And the guy I was buying them from was one of the kids that used to play paintball in this barn. <laughs> <laughs> How funny. <laughs> so I got to talk to him about what used to be here because there used to be different houses and this and all this stuff. And it was kind of interesting to learn about um, what this space was before they plowed down almost all the old houses and, and built this new house we're in. Uh, but it's still got the original barn um, on it. But that was funny to say, yeah, you know, your paintball splats, they're still all over the inside of that barn. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so what time will I expect you to come to clean You know what up? you're buying. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, let's uh, talk about sneakers and then we can wrap this thing up. Or are we not going to talk about sneakers? Well, it would be a good follow up to uh, what you just talked about with the heist books. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So let's talk about 1992's movie Sneakers with Robert Redford, Dan Aykroyd, Ben Kingsley, Mary McDonald. Oh, River Phoenix. There's a lot of yep, names yep. in this. He was the young one. Yep. Yes. Um, it was a cast. It, it was. I think it was a really underappreciated movie for its time. I mean, an, an amazing cast, um, and is and it's a movie that still holds up. Mm-hmm. And so, Sneakers is a hacking movie, and one of the few hacking movies that doesn't completely suck. And uh, the name itself, Sneakers, has a couple of meanings that are sort of and related to computer use and the movie itself as they are uh, sneaking about a lot, but also sneaker net. Uh, what is that? Oh, should we uh, spoiler alert here? Oh yeah. We're spoiling the heck out of this. Okay. Sneaker net so. was uh, back in the, um, uh, back in the olden days, back in the would, 1900s, although it's actually not that old and sneaker net still exists today. Hey, yes. would you look at this file? Uh, the idea is that you are, walking from computer to computer with your sneakers carrying some sort of media that will be transporting a file. So we used to do it with uh, floppy disks or cassette tapes. Um, now we do it with USB keys. Uh, so SneakerNet is still alive and well. Um, but yeah, that's the idea. And it's actually a, a safer way of transmitting files than sending it over a network. So it's still used in high security situations where you don't want to send something over a network. Mm-hmm. And probably the best sort of send up of sneaker net was in office space when they were getting ready to run their program. And the two guys are sitting next to each other and they kind of synchronously spin their chairs to hand the floppy disk from one to the next. <laughs> anyway. Nice. So the, the big question in sneakers, this might be a fun thing to talk about. Um, at the heart of all of it was a box that would allow you to break all codes and in doing oh, so, yeah, all encryption, to, yeah, yeah, you could destabilize this world economy. Um, everyone with m- all of the money would no longer have control of that. Um, what would the world become if you had the ability to say, "Yeah, there's no way you can encrypt things anymore. All that Bitcoin is nonsense. All of the world banks are nonsense." Um, well. Okay, is that a good thing? That was kind of, kind of the big question of the movie, is it, you have the ability to do it. Do you do it? Right. It, and it's you know, pre-Bitcoin, obviously. But 
it, it would certainly translate to today. And the the crew, of course, some of them are taken seriously, and some of them are you know not to be taken seriously in the of the actors in the play, or I'm sorry, of the actors in the movie. So, what did you like best about the movie, Eric? Well, it's funny because I, I remember enjoying it, and I was thinking it didn't really leave a huge impact on it. I did like Dan Aykroyd, where he was funny but mostly serious. But the scene, they have to get a voice recording, uh, and Mary McDonnell is sort of the, uh, I'll say seducer, but it's not quite so salacious. But, you know, she's on a date with this guy, and she needs to get him to say the word passport. She keeps trying to work the conversation in there. <laughs> And finally, she's just like, you know, oh, you know what really makes me excited or something like that. It's like, if you say the word passport, and so, you know, it's just like at the end, you just punt. And uh, that scene is just hilarious. It's probably my favorite scene in the whole movie. I've seen there's a Taskmaster. I don't know if uh, you've watched that show. Oh, Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. We did a whole episode on it. There's a... Okay. There's a... I remember there was a challenge where they had to um, order a pizza without saying a number of words like pizza and they had to use those kind of things to <laughs> like, can you just say this word for me? Just, just say it. <laughs> nice. What I liked about sneakers and this was in the early nineties, we had a, it was when most people knew computers existed, but before most people understand how computers actually, what they did, Um, Mm -hmm. so computers were like magic at that time, um, and could be used in movies to really solve any plot issue. And I guess that's probably not too different from today. Um, but it was really rampant. And for this time in my life, I was, uh, I was a computer professional and I would watch these movies and I'd just be like, this is so stupid. You know, this would never happen. And it just ridiculous things of what people would do. Uh, with a floppy disk or over a modem, uh, all that. And sneakers came out, and I'm like, you know, the stuff in this movie actually is not that far-fetched. Even the overall um, the overall box that can break all codes, uh, most coding systems are at their heart around big prime numbers. Mm-hmm. And if you came up with the ability to take a you have the the idea of a lot of encoding. It's based on the fact that if you take a one giant prime number times a second giant prime number, you get a third number that's only divisible by those two big numbers. And so that is at the heart of a lot of modern encryption, that idea right there. And if you could come up with the box that could take – now, when I say big numbers, these are like numbers of many, 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 many digits long. Um, but if you had a box that could solve that problem of – I have a giant prime number, and I can find the two numbers that go into it. Uh, it could break a lot of the codes of the world. And I really liked that it's like, hey, this could actually, at its heart, work. Um, so that's why I appreciated about it, is the stuff that was in it um, was much more feasible than most of the movies of the day. Hmm. I know. That's Especially cool. nowadays, hacking consists of having multiple monitors, staring intently at them, and typing at approximately 115 words per minute. That's right. Without ever making a typo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the scenes that I liked is that uh, David Stratham played, uh, or Strathern played the uh, character Whistler, mm-hmm. who was blind, right? And they were trying to figure out the direction of where somebody was because they'd been kidnapped and they were, or not kidnapped, but they, 
had a mask over their head and he was describing what he saw or heard rather, obviously he couldn't see anything cause he had a mask over his head or sack. And he was describing, well, I heard like a cocktail party or I heard this or the other thing. And Whistler was interpreting those sounds through the soundscape of the city that they were in. It's like, Oh, well, obviously you were, you were going over the bridge and did it sound like this? Did it sound like that? Did it sound like this? And he figured out sort of where it was. And it was a bit of super powery, but it also wasn't too far beyond the realm of someone who lives exclusively in a soundscape being able to get that kind of context from somebody else's description. It was kind of like a policeman doing a sketch, right? A sketch artist saying, oh, what does this person look like? Except for he was trying to figure out where folks went just by sound. That was pretty cool. Yeah. It's definitely a movie to go watch again, see if it still holds up. I haven't watched it in, in, in forever, but it's funny because my wife well, wants is to... It, I guess it's, what, 30 years old? Yeah. Is, that, is math right there? Yep, yep. Yeah. My oh, wife gosh. has been talking about wanting to rewatch The Net with Sandra Bullock uh, just to see how how different it is, you know, nowadays. Back then, you know, she was getting groceries delivered, and that was amazing over the modem-based internet, so... I'm curious. I'm not expecting the net to hold up at all, but uh, I think the sneakers probably could. Yeah, I saw it like six years back. Well, especially when you know, if, if you realize that most uh, most computer systems out there, most big corporate and government computer systems, run on extremely old computer systems. <laughs> That's true. It's Be- probably because it's probably yeah, current. <laughs> you don't know that if if you if if you if you haven't worked in any kind of large company. Uh, because the old legacy systems, the mainframes, are so that the core of everything that's built on top of it, they still are what drive these systems. And so now you realize this if you've worked at a company and you're like, why am I using this system here? That's a black and green screen to do everything. Right. <laughs> it's like because everything is still built on that. So that so it's that's why it will hold up because if you realize at the heart of most of our systems out there is something that doesn't even have color. <sighs> <laughs> I got no words. Cool. Yeah, so got no words. Thumbs up for sneakers. Fun movie. Absolutely. Should that be toes up? No, oh. no, it should not. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna close that one off right now. <laughs> well, all right then, uh, Scott. Uh, where can people find you? Should they have the desire to do so? Uh, I'm active on Twitter at S. Nicholson and on Facebook at Professor Scott Nicholson, or you can just go to scottnicholson.com and find everything through that. Nice. And Eric? EricDewey.com is usually the best place to find me. Nice. Once again, I'm all over the internet as well as for you. Uh, find me there. It was interesting to hear all about replica prop forum and acrylic pores. So thanks, guys. Um, I appreciate you hanging out with me today. Thanks for asking. It was fun. All right, and I and look forward to talking to you on another episode of On. Wait, no, what is this? <laughs> Games in school? No, wait. Hey, what what is this one called? <laughs> the Inverse Genius Fortnightly. Oh time. yeah, that's it. That's it. With Donald, Eric, and Scott. Everybody, thank you for listening. Goodbye. Bye bye. That's it for this episode of the Inverse Genius Podcast. The Inverse Genius Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license. Thank you.